Hello, welcome to Why Did Peter Sink? This is a three-part series called The Age of Costanza. This is part one, um, subtitle, The Food and Sex Episode. All right, in an episode of Seinfeld, George Costanza tries to figure out a way where he can eat his favorite sandwich while he has sex. So he puts a pastrami on rye with mustard sandwich in the nightstand so that midway in the act with his girlfriend, he can sneak a bite and thus enjoy his two favorite things simultaneously. Uh, the last 70 years of American history could be dubbed the age of Costanza because the sitcom character articulates the twin falls of our food abundance that led to the euphemism of what we today call the sexual revolution, a term we use to describe our era of broken homes, drug abuse, uh, sex toys, birth control, permanent adolescence, uh, mass uh, abortion, and endless soul searching. Uh, really, what is the show Seinfeld about if not living a life of permanent adolescence. That's kind of the entire show. That's what all the jokes are about. Um, even Jerry's apartment is stocked with children's cereal, which I also eat all the time. Uh, they never cook anything. They eat at the diner. They're always at the diner. And they are childless, aging New Yorkers where lust and entertainment pretty much consumes their life. Um, it's like a never-ending sophomore year of high school, kind of. Jerry and the other three are all grains of wheat that never die. Um, but let me just set that parable aside for now, because if you listen to this, you know how I love the parable of the grain of wheat. Um, but here's what's interesting. George Costanza put food and sex together. Okay, long ago, St. Benedict recognized the connection between food and sex as well, except St. Benedict realized that overstuffed bellies forget God and proceed directly to sin. There's a, a real connection here. His motto of ora et labora, which was pray and work, set the basic rule for life in the monastery. And uh, when I read this a few years ago, something stood out to me because I had lived in the life uh, in the age of Costanza, in the age of all-you-can-eat buffets and the ubiquitous porn that's online and everywhere else. So from the rule of St. Benedict, this is a very old book, this is uh, chapter 39. He said, Above all things, however, overindulgence must be avoided, and a monk must never be overtaken by indigestion. For there is nothing so opposed to the Christian character as overindulgence. According to our Lord's words, see to it that your hearts be not burdened with overindulgence. As I've gone on at length in prior series on this on why did Peter sink about the decline and fall of how we read and understand the Bible, we have had a parallel decline in how we see our food, uh, of which I will go on at length about now. But I'm not going to talk about like the Michael Pollan omnivores di dilemma type of thing and uh, or or other foodie things. Um, and I'm not going to ramble on about organic farming or paleo diets or whole foods or macros and fitness. I'm going to talk about food and sex. Um, Michael Pollan books are awesome. They're very uh, informative, and I enjoy them, but that's not where I'm going. Costanza was so far gone in the Seinfeld episode that he doubled down on sin. His character was so blind that while eating, he also wanted sexual pleasure. And while making a great joke of his character's entire selfish lifestyle, he sums up the entire post-World War II era of massive food production and sex as a pleasure alone obsession. But St. Benedict figured out this problem long before. He put things together in the correct order. Food and sex 
do kind of go together, sort of like many of us 1990s bar patrons considered beer and cigarettes as a form of dark side bread and butter. Uh, recognizing this connection between fullness and lust, um, fasting in the church has far more to do with virtue than it does with attaining six-pack abs. The modern saying of abs are made in the kitchen is the opposite purpose of clean eating in a monastery. In the life of a fasting monk, he probably has six-pack abs, but no one will ever witness them. The point of abs in a monastery, actually no one cares about abs in a monastery. Um, that's kind of the point. Uh, most intermittent fasters today, they seek six-pack abs. And honestly, let's just be real. It's it's about, often having six-pack abs is about having more sex or being desired for sex. So like George Costanza, um, the fasters are often controlling their food and, and really obsessing order over food. And not for everyone, obviously, but in order to have more sex, you want to be more desirable for it. In other words, um, adultery of all varieties is the goal. Um, actually, to be wanted by other people um, is, is a kind of um, lust itself. So you might think of fitness as just getting healthy. And if you're doing it that way, that's a great way. It's, it can be very virtuous. But if it's to be wanted and lusted over, then it's not. So um, I've never heard anyone proclaim I'm working on getting six-pack abs for God. But a monk is doing exactly that without even knowing it. So if you're fasting for God, you're you're getting six-pack abs as a gift that you don't really care about, which is, that's the great thing about worshiping God. Um, removing the variable of sex from all equations allows for virtuous motives to flourish. So here's the a dirty little secret about the obesity epidemic and the fitness craze in America. They are the same thing. They are actually the same problem. They are both a kind of gluttony of self. Fitness goals dabble in lust and vanity and pride, whereas the simple overeater is just sitting in the hot tub of sloth. And both of these problems can only occur in a time of excess food, where the overeater fails to stop eating, and the fitness-crazed person has so much food that they can pick and choose to only eat what fits their macros. So recently at the gym, I heard a, mad, a man say, uh, I was in the locker room putting my shoes on or something, and he said, I have a hard time eating 200 grams of protein a day. And I wanted to tell him that's because no one in history has ever needed that much protein a day. Okay, maybe Andre the Giant, the wrestler. Uh, but rather than start an awkward discussion, instead I just pondered my own motives for attending the gym, and I wondered, was I truly there to preserve and sustain my body? Or if I want to look good for other people, that I might be admired. Because even if sex isn't the aim of exercise, to be desirable can be just uh, a lusty, just as lusty, you know. Uh, and Jesus was quite clear about how easy adultery is to commit when he said in Matthew 5, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whew, that's a tough one. That's one that everyone has to stop and look at seriously. Um, this phrase I keep on echo in my head because... How many men today understand that adultery, a mortal sin, is always just the thought away? Most people aren't really worried about that. They don't think about that. Um, the amount of men who just think viewing porn is no big deal, is it's everywhere. Um, but that is exactly where the spiritual combat must be fought and fought. And it is a worthy fight to take up because once you can turn your eyes away from lust, real freedom begins, not to mention 
truly virtuous friendships um, with everyone, everyone you meet, really, not just with women. Um, the fitness dilemma, uh, I won't go too deep into it here since I covered it in an earlier series, but I will leave it by echoing St. Augustine, who I feel suggested the best reason for exercise, which is to reasonably care for the body because what God created is good with the full awareness that we are not only a body, we are also a soul. And as a member of the laptop class, which I am um, as an IT person in a sedentary age where we all sit around all day, um, we in the privileged information technology world are increasingly separated from manual labor. So thus heeding St. Augustine, I need to quote, care for the body as though I was going to live forever and care for my soul as if I were going to die tomorrow. So again, the two commandments from Jesus, love God, love others, then you can, you know, love yourself, joy. This is a nice little acronym is spelled J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. That's the order. Keep it in that order. Everything goes good. Now back to the monks. A fasting monk aims toward chastity without a second thought of six-pack abdominal muscles. The fasting weightlifter aims toward adulation and maybe sex fantasies, or at the least being desirable. No gym selfie has ever been posted on social media without the motive somewhere about of getting laid or being coveted somewhere behind it. The monk aims toward God and the other toward the self or more particularly the ego. The monk aims to tame the passions while the other wants to inflame them by lighting a match and throwing gas on the tinder and often using an app called tinder. Um, much of the marketing will tell you that exercise is about body and mind, but it never mentions the soul making it yet another situation where we live out of wholeness, spiritually out of sync, uh, in the amputated state of a body peeled apart from its soul. And we tend to admire the fit people, just as we do the wealthy. If you're strong and healthy and young, we worship youth, what uh, looks good. Uh, you know, we, but we look at thin or poor monks with kind of a side eye, like you know, the holier-than-thou uh, person with a big brown cloak on. Um, perhaps today we'd, we'd call those people chasing virtue tryhards. That's kind of a new a saying. We call them people tryhards. We might call them that rather than Jesus freaks like we used to. But how you treat your food is really, really indicative of how you live your entire life. And I say this as a sugar monster with the full realization that much of this post is about my own history of dating. Um, I dated Sarah Lee, Betty Crocker, and dear old, dear old Aunt Jemima, who is now, um, she's no more, but uh, yeah, I think it's called Pearl Milling or something now. But anyway, I really need to get started renouncing soul ties to these high fructose ladies. Um, so as a food monster, this has been one of those more eye-opening discoveries of my adult life. All of that Kool-Aid, I know it couldn't have helped. And when I think of the Kool-Aid man now, I can't help but think of Bluto from Animal House because like Bluto, Kool-Aid man barges into rooms crashing through walls, he's overstuffed, and he's ready to party. Uh, or like Chris Farley in Tommy Boy. I was probably drinking Kool-Aid and watching Animal House at the same time at one point. I think I first saw the movie Animal House around the age 10, which is one of the hundreds of movies that encourage us all to drink the cultural Kool-Aid. And as I chugged sugar, Bluto chugged chug Jack Daniels, the whole bottle, and then smashed it on the car behind him. And it was definitely cool and funny. Um, so I was drinking the Kool-Aid. I think we all from the 80s and 90s drank the Kool-Aid one way or another. And every movie was preaching this gospel of the self and uh, 
many of the movies were kind of the self-destruction in a way, um, like Bluto. But so the Mountain Dew, the Lucky Charms, my beloved Cinnamon Toast Crunch, uh, and Jimmy John's Subs, and so much Taco Bell, Taco Smell. Um, is it any wonder that the era of Party Till You Puke was followed by an era of Spanx and Tinder and Drag Queen Story Hour? I don't think it's there's a disconnection there at all. It actually follows very like like a story um that you would it's kind of predictable um it's kind of a literal echo of the garden of eden story too where immorality follows a bounty of food availability and the book of proverbs specifically calls out the excess consumption of sugar as a danger in reference to honey um it's on proverbs chapter 29 says if you have found honey eat only enough for you lest you be sated with it and vomit it (laughs) so okay okay yeah we've found honey we have found sugar. There's a book called Sweetness and Power, and it covers the history of how Europeans took sugar by the sword, turning a luxury item, sugar was a luxury item, into a staple, and how it radically changed culture, diet, and even work. So in other words, the Garden of Eden story, which is so concise in its telling in Genesis, has played out really over the past 500 years in in American history, uh, since the fruit of the sugarcane became an obsession, uh, somehow moving to a land flowing with milk and honey causes a falling away from God in every case. And the biblical stories tell this repeatedly as food abundance in Egypt led to slavery and food abundance in Canaan led to worshiping other gods. In fact, the reason Jacob's family goes to Egypt is because of a famine and there's food abundance in Egypt. And then when they're in the desert, they're suffering, but they enter Canaan, the land of milk and honey. So without even knowing much about the Bible, um, we can see that there's this food and sin relationship. And you don't even have to read any Gospels to see that Jesus was a thin man who denied himself luxurious food. Um, He didn't work out for muscle mass, and he didn't desire sex, and he didn't sin. Or if he did desire it, he obviously didn't sin. So as always... He shows us how to live our lives. So even when he feeds the masses bread, he doesn't continue to do it daily because he came to bring the living water and the bread of life, which is the true fruit, food and drink that we seek. And Costanza, of course, isn't looking for those things. Um, St. Benedict knew his knew this sweetness and power problem long before Columbus sailed to the new world. Um St. Bendik has some outstanding insight about how the monks who could not maintain a fast were like fodder for the devil. It's, it's really interesting to read about the history of fasting in the church and why it's done. Um, and, and it really, it hurts. It hurts to read because I know it to be true. It all makes sense. And peeling the onion of sin from a life results in many aha moments where we see through a glass darkly and suddenly we see Jesus face to face and understand how and why the errors were made, but more importantly, how to remedy them through this through his healing uh, atonement or covering of our sins, removal of our sins. So reading the early church fathers is always eye-opening because we think of all those people from that era is kind of hicks or like backwards or, you know, they didn't have technology and TVs, but then they prove in their words, the wisdom that they knew, they knew the human heart better than billions of us do today. So is it any wonder that the fall in Genesis centers around food, grasping the apple, followed by sex? There's the implied sexual fall. The fruit of the tree attracts Eve 
and the rejection of God happens and the loss of innocence results where they realize they're naked. So taking the easy food from the forbidden tree leads to sin. When I think of um, the Green Revolution, which is something that happened in the 1940s, I've mentioned Norman Borlaug on another series where um, a lot of our fertilizer and agricultural practices exploded. Our, our yield production went went huge um, from the 1940s onward. It flooded cheap food to the wealthy West and the undeniable moral decay of America that followed. Um, it's It's not difficult to see the connection. In fact, of all the things that brought the West to a place of debauchery, I would say I would I would say it is not the birth control pill or no fault divorce. Uh, no, here's my thesis for this series. I would say it is the combine harvester and nitrogen fertilizer. So, okay, hear me out. I know that sounds really dramatic. Um, I realized you probably stopped reading after that last sentence or listening. But if you'll hold on a moment. Um, the immense amount of cheap food that American ingenuity and efficiency has produced and the sexual depravity that followed, uh, does it not seem to follow that this was the same course of tale told in the Garden of Eden? An abundance of food led to the elevation of our pride, bringing about the rejection of God, and soon after, the detonation of sin erupted like a bomb in our world. So you don't get to the sexual fall without going through a story of cheap, easy, and accessible food that we assume will always be there. All right, thanks for listening to part one. I'll be back with parts two and three on this series with this wild and crazy theory. Um, hope you enjoyed it, and I'll see you on the next one.